Hey, we're Phil and Meredith, and we're the pastors here at Cornerstone Church, and we are so glad that you are here with us today. It's our prayer that this message is an inspiration to you, that it builds you up, that it stirs your faith right now in your today, as well as in the days to come. We believe that God has great things for you. God bless you. On your way down to your seats, why don't you go ahead and tell somebody that you were made to triumph. Tell them you were made to triumph. Go ahead and put it in the chat if you're joining online. Tell somebody else that you might not be in the room with right now that you were made to triumph. Last week, we started a new series here at Cornerstone Church called Joyful and Triumphant. And the reason that we're talking about this is because you probably don't feel this way. Chances are, if you have asked somebody around you in your community, how are you feeling at the moment at some stage this year, the answer that you got back was unlikely to be, I'm feeling joyful, I'm feeling triumphant. And that is exactly why we need to be talking about it at the moment, because God has made us to be joyful. God has made us to be triumphant. And if we don't feel that way, when, that's why we need to talk about why that is the case. Because God has made you to be an overcomer. God has made you to be victorious. God has made you to be bubbling up with joy. We talked about that last week, that God has made you to be joyful. And if you're not feeling about that, if you're not feeling that way, then we need to talk about why that is the case. Meredith talked about that last week, and I loved hearing from many of you that reached out and said, hey, I love that message about being joyful because I realized during that message that I'm not feeling joyful, that I have lost my joy in this past season, that the enemy has stolen that joy from me. And so what I did was, this is what people started telling me over the, the course of this last week. They said to me, what I realized was that I needed to cast that spirit of heaviness out of my house. What I needed to do was to open up the curtains and tell that spirit that it needed to go because I didn't want to be down and burdened and full of this evil spirit anymore. What I wanted to be was joyful. And I realized during that message that I had lost my joy and that I needed to do something about that. And I loved hearing that from many different people that are in this church that heard that message last week about how we need to be joyful, that God has called us to be joyful. That's what we talked about last week and how important it is to be sharers of joy, that you were called to not just have joy but to spread joy and you can't spread what you don't have. You can't spread love if you don't have it. You can't spread grace if you don't have it. You can't spread peace if you don't have it. And you can't spread joy if you've lost your joy. And so we talked last week about how important it is to be people that have joy and spread that joy everywhere that we go. And today, we're gonna to be talking about being triumphant. Last week, we talked about being joyful. Today, we're gonna to talk about being triumphant. Are you feeling triumphant? Yes. Come on, there's like nine people in the room that are feeling triumphant. Are you feeling triumphant? Yes. If I am uh, truly honest, I have not felt particularly triumphant this year. And I think that if you were truly honest, you would say the same thing as well, right? And if you're joining online, I'm sure that 2020 has not been filled with many moments of triumph for you. And so I have found this message particularly difficult to put together. I have been wrestling this entire week with God. God, why would you have me preach a message about being triumphant when I have not felt triumphant all this year? 
right? And every time that I pray that prayer, every time that I wrestle and struggle with God, what I hear him say back to me is that you are an overcomer. He says to me that you are above only and not beneath. He says to me that you are more than a conqueror. And so sometimes when you're not feeling triumphant, you need to say those words over yourself that I am an overcomer, that I am triumphant, that I am a child of God. Remind yourself who you are and whose you are. And when you remind yourself that you are a child of God, you will feel and you will find that confidence. You will feel and you will find that triumph that God has called us to live our lives with. And so today we're gonna be talking about the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah from the Old Testament. You might be thinking to yourself, but it's Christmas season. Why are we talking about Hezekiah from the Old Testament? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We should be talking about something triumphant, something about Jesus, something about the Christmas season, right? But I promise you that it will make sense. I promise you that I'll tie it in right at the end, but you gotta hang on until then. So the story of Hezekiah is really an interesting one. Fun fact, Hezekiah actually takes up 1% of the Bible. One whole percent of the Bible is dedicated to Hezekiah. And you might think to yourself that that is not a lot of the Bible to be dedicated, but that is more than what is written about David. That is more than what is written about Adam. That is more than what is written about Jonah or Noah. Right? 1% of the Bible is dedicated to Hezekiah, but how much of what we know about the Bible is made up of what these other characters did? Many of us, if we were asked, who is Hezekiah and what did he do? We would think, well, I kind of have heard that name before. I think Hezekiah Walker is a worship leader that I might sing some of his songs, right? But I don't know exactly who Hezekiah was in the Bible. And so I wanna change that today. I wanna talk about Hezekiah because there's a story in particular with Hezekiah and Sennacherib that is written about three different times in the Bible. We read about it in 2 Kings. We read about it in 2 Chronicles and we read about it in the book of Isaiah as well. And if a story is written about multiple times, then it's a big deal then we should pay attention to it because some stories are written about one times, very few stories are written about two times, and even fewer stories are written about three times. And so if there is a story that is written about multiple times, then we should pay attention to it, right? And so this is the story that we read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. The authors that wrote this story have different things that they wanna emphasize, they have different things that they wanna focus on, but it's essentially the exact same story that is written about multiple times. And so I wanna read this from 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse one, and it reads like this in the NIV. It says, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. But hold up, because we need to talk about some context right here, right? We just talked about a few really big names. We talked about Hezekiah, we talked about Sennacherib, and we can't learn what we need to learn unless we know the context that we need to know about these people. And so we know that Hezekiah is a king of Judah. Now, if you have grown up in church, if you've been here for a while, then this might not be for you. If you've been reading your Bible, then this might not be for you, but why don't you look to the person that is next to you right now and say, this is for you. This, this is not for you, this is for the person that's next to you, right? And so what we know is that Hezekiah is a king of Judah. So if we backtrack a little bit further, we know that there is King David, right? Many of us know about him. And then there was King Solomon, his son. And then after Solomon 
Uh, Israel is broken into essentially the northern tribes and then the southern tribe of Judah. And what we know is that Israel, the northern tribes, never had a good king. Not one king was good in the northern tribes of Israel. And what we know is that Judah, the southern tribe, only had a few good kings, only had four good kings throughout the entire history of Judah. And Hezekiah was one of these good kings. The Bible says that he was righteous, that he lived upright, that he did what the Lord told him to do. And what is even more remarkable, remarkable about this is when you consider who Hezekiah's father was. Hezekiah's father was a guy named Ahaz. And Ahaz was an evil dude. Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was not a righteous man. Ahaz became king and then essentially did everything wrong. Ahaz tried to destroy the temple. He filled up the temple with all kinds of debris. In fact, he closed the temple doors. He got rid of the Levites who were essentially like the church staff, the people that helped proclaim the gospel, right? All of these kinds of things. And he built up all kinds of idols and he told the people there in Judah, hey, let's worship these idols. He was not a good dude. And this is the family that Hezekiah grew up in. And so Hezekiah grows up, and then at the age of 25, his father Ahaz dies, and then Hezekiah becomes king at 25 years old. And Hezekiah could have decided to use the fact that he grew up in an evil environment as an excuse. He could have decided to use that as an excuse and say, well, my father didn't act right, my father didn't do right, but he didn't do that. Instead, what he does is that he dedicates the very first things that he does to turning everything around. His father did wrong and Hezekiah did right. The Bible says that Ahaz spent 16 years filling up the temple with debris. And Hezekiah spends the first 16 days of his time as the king of Judah clearing out all of that debris. 16 days he spends clearing out the temple of debris. And when you think about 16 days, you've got to think about how much debris that actually must have been if it takes you 16 days to clear that out, right? Meredith and I spend a couple of days a year cleaning out our house. Like we do clean regularly, but, but like just a couple of times a year, we do, you know, those deep cleans, you know, like spring cleaning and winter cleaning. And we go through all of our clothes that we might not want anymore. And we donate them off to charity. And then we do the deep cleans, like, you know, when you clean the bottom of the oven only a couple of times a year, or you might get all the way into the corners or you dust and do all that deep cleaning, right? You do the repairs that you don't normally get to, the honey-do list that, you know, you might be making and and so we do that a couple of times a year and even though we have three little kids it has never taken us 16 days to clean out our house when I think about 16 days to clean something it's probably like those that TV show you know hoarders where um, someone has you know like the psychological mental illness where they just hoard things and they fill their homes with the stuff from the floor to the ceiling it's filled filled with stuff that probably takes 16 days to clear out and so hezekiah spends the first 16 days of his reign clearing out the temple what took ahaz 16 years to do took hezekiah 16 days to undo what took the enemy years to do in your life 
God can take days to undo in your life. The addiction that took years to build up in your own life, God can turn around in a moment. The mental illness that has been building in your life because the enemy has been tormenting you, the evil mindsets that you have been building up in your life, God can turn that around in a moment because God stands outside of time. God stands outside of space. God is not bound by the same things that the enemy is bound by. God is not bound by the same things that you are bound by. And so what took Ahaz 16 years to do took Hezekiah 16 years days to undo. That's some supernatural acceleration. That's the kind of anointing like when you're running downhill. That's the kind of anointing with the wind at your back. That's the kind of anointing that I want to live my life by. Not bound by time, but, but celebrating a God that lives outside of time and a God that lives outside of space. And so Hezekiah ensures that the first thing that he does is to clear out the temple, to open up the temple again, to reinstate the Levites, to remove all the unholy idols that his father had installed to be worshipped. And so when we read this in 2 Chronicles 32, when it says, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, this is what it's talking about. This is what he had done when he first became king. So it says this, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. So we know all about Hezekiah now, but who is this other guy, Sennacherib, right? Who is this other guy? Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. Assyria is modern-day Syria, and Assyria had this enormously vast army that had already taken over many other nations. You remember a few moments ago when I talked about the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah? Assyria had already taken over the northern tribe of Israel and already taken that community and exiled them into Assyria. This is what he is doing. He is essentially trying to take over the known world. And so he has already taken over Hezekiah's brothers and sisters in the northern tribe of Israel. And now he is coming after Judah as well. He is coming after Jerusalem, which is where Hezekiah is. And it doesn't say this in the Bible, but if I'm Hezekiah, I'm 25 years old, and I have dedicated the first period of my time as the king of Judah to doing right, to doing what God would want from me, to acting right, to doing what I know is right, to undoing what my father had done, my evil father. I'm undoing all of that, and I'm doing what is right. And then it says this. This is the repayment that Hezekiah receives after all that Hezekiah has so faithfully done. Sennacherib comes to invade. What it tells me is that there is no formula for success in life. Just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean that you are going to be rewarded with the right stuff. There is no formula for life. God does not say, Jesus does not say in the New Testament that when you receive him into your life that you're not, he he says that you're not going to be guaranteed perfection. Matter of fact, he actually says the opposite, that when you receive him into your life, that you are guaranteed to be persecuted because the message of the gospel is the antithesis of what the message of the world is. The message of the gospel is counterintuitive to what the world says. And so this goes against what we want to believe in church 
because we wanna believe that if you tithe regularly, then you are going to be healthy. We want to believe that if you show up to a church service in person in the middle of a global viral pandemic, then you're gonna receive double portion, more than those people that join online, right? We believe these things, that you're a hardcore Christian if you do these kinds of things, and you're guaranteed to have success in life, that your business is gonna overflow if you do the right kind of thing. But what this says to me right here is that that is not true, that bad things still happen to good people. And we talk about this from time to time, that the real question is not why do bad things happen to good people, but rather what do good people do when bad things happen to them? Right, what are you gonna do about it? How are you preparing for the bad things that are likely to be coming your way? What are you going to do when you receive a bill in the mail that you were not expecting? What are you going to do when your car breaks down? Is it just a small, minor inconvenience or is it like it's the end of the world for the next week, right? How much does it disrupt you? How much does it eat away at your foundations? When bad things happen to you, how do you respond? Does that bad thing steal away your joy or are you able to hold on to your joy right in the middle of persecution? Because the measure of faith, the measure of trust, the measure of peace that you have in your life can't really be determined in the good seasons. Those things can only really be determined in the valley seasons, in the times of persecution, in the times when the enemy is coming against you. And so Sennacherib is, was this very real enemy that was coming against Hezekiah. But also for us, we all have a Sennacherib. Sennacherib was this evil person who was coming to torment Hezekiah, but we also have a Sennacherib in our lives. Hezekiah, well, uh, Sennacherib is a situation. It is a thing. It is a person. It is something that is coming against you to disrupt your sense of normalcy, laying siege to your well-being. This is what Sennacherib is in your life. And when the enemy comes against you, it is an indication that the enemy is threatened by you, that the enemy sees you as a threat, and that is why the enemy is acting out and coming after you, trying to steal your joy, trying to disrupt what you are doing because the enemy sees you as a threat. And it's in those moments when I feel the enemy coming against me that I have to remind myself who I am, that I am a child of God. I have to remind myself that God created me, that God saved me, that I am on God's side, that I am an overcomer, that I am above only and not not beneath, that God has made me to be more than a conqueror, that more are those who are for me than those who are against me, that I have angelic support all around me. This is who I am. This is who God has created me to be. This is who God has created you to be. That even in the middle of persecution, even right in the middle of it, God is still there with you. God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. God is right there next to you in the middle of your addiction, in the middle of your problem, in the middle of your issue, in the middle of your financial debt, in the middle of whatever the problem is, God is right there next to you today right there next to you, and he is blessing you right in the middle of the breaking season that you find yourself in. And so what I wanna do for the next few moments is to take some time looking at what Hezekiah does when the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes against him. Because I think that we can learn some really interesting things about how we can be triumphant. You guys wanna be triumphant today? 
All right, so let's look at what Hezekiah does. It says this in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 2. It says, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, verse 3 says, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. The first thing that Hezekiah does is that he consults with wise counsel. If you are trying to win every war that you are in, every battle that you are in, every addiction that you are facing, if you are trying to overcome every situation that you are in by yourself, then you are being foolish. Because there is no reason for you to be reinventing the wheel because there are people in this community, there are people all around you that are further down the line than you are. There are people all around you that have probably experienced the, the same battle that you have. And if you are trying to win that battle by yourself, then you're being foolish. That's one of the reasons that Meredith and I have decided to assemble a board of advisors, people who are further down the line than we are. That's a nice way of saying people who are older than we are, who have more experience and wisdom than we do. We haven't led at this level for a long time, and so we wanna surround ourselves with wise counsel to make sure that we are learning from other people's experiences, to make sure that they are helping us see blind spots that we may have. And we are so excited to be announcing who this team this board of advisors is next month. We can't wait to roll out these names. We've loved having conversations with them. We can't wait to let you know who this team is that's gonna be helping advise Meredith and I as we keep leading this church into the future. We can't wait to let you know about how we have been consulting wise counsel as we continue to make our decisions. And so if you are surrounding yourself with people that just encourage you, then you're missing part of the conversation. Encouragement is important. People telling you that you can do it is important. Me telling you that you are an overcomer is important, but that's only part of the conversation. We also need people in our lives that are challenging us, people that are sharpening us, people that are cutting us and pruning us and helping us see the things that we might not want to see. This is what wise counsel does. This is what our life group leaders do. And so if you're not in a life group, I wanna encourage you to get in one because our life groups are filled with community, people that help you see what you might not be able to see by yourself. And this is exactly the purpose that life group leaders serve in our church. I wanna encourage you to get in one if you're not. The first thing that Hezekiah does is that he consults wise counsel. The second verse that I wanna look at is 2 Chronicles 32 and four. The very next one, it says, they gathered a large group of people who had blocked all the springs and stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they asked. The second thing that Hezekiah did was that he gathered people to starve the enemy, people who could execute on a plan, people who were moving in the same direction, people who could do something. This is what Hezekiah did. He gathered people that were moving in the same direction, people who had skills and abilities and were moving in the same direction, and then they executed on the plan of blocking the streams so that the Assyrians that were coming to invade had no access to the water that was theirs. They blocked the supply of water to the enemy. They blocked the supply of life to the enemy. And we've got to ask ourselves the same question today. What am I doing that is feeding the enemy in my life? Either intentionally or unintentionally, you are probably doing something that is feeding the enemy that is in your life. 
You might not be aware of it, but you are probably doing something that is feeding the enemy that is in your life. The enemy wants to come and steal your confidence. And so what are you doing to keep your insecurities alive? Are you opening up the feed of your ex-partner to see who they are with right now, to see what type of relationship that they are in, to see what types of things that they are doing, to see what types of things your former boss is doing? Are you opening up the feeds and looking back in life to see what is going on in those people's lives, to feed the insecurity that is in your life? You might think that it's relatively unimportant. You might think that it's not a big deal, but what you're doing is feeding the enemy that is coming against you by keeping that insecurity alive. Your finances might be kind of tight in this season and you check your bank account every single day, like something is gonna change with your bank account, and you might think that it's not a big deal, but what you're doing is that you're heaping that depression, you're heaping that weight on you, praying for a miracle that something is gonna change about your bank account. You might not see it as a big deal, but what you're doing is that you're feeding the enemy that is in your life. You might struggle with purity. I wanna come down your lane here for a moment. You might struggle with purity and when you open your Instagram, you see those recommended videos, you know, where people might not be wearing too much clothing and you tap on the video and you think, well, it's not that big a deal because this is social media, this is Instagram, this is Facebook, this is not like hardcore pornography and so this is not a big deal because this is on social media, so it's not that big a deal, right? But what you're doing is that you're opening the door and you're feeding the enemy that is wanting to come against you. You're opening the door. You're giving life to the enemy that is coming against you. You might struggle with anxiety, and you, for 24 hours a day, leave your TV on the news, the news that wants nothing more than for you to live in anxiety. This biased, driven media that wants you to be filled with ulcers and you spend your time focused on the media and what the media says about the world rather than filling yourself with the hope-filled, transformative power of the gospel. And you might not think that it's that big a deal because it's important to stay informed, right? And it is, but not at the expense of your own peace not at the expense of what God is trying to do in your life, not at the distraction of what the gospel is saying that we should be focusing our time and attention on. And so the second thing that Hezekiah does is to gather people and to starve the enemy, cut off the supply that the enemy is going after. Surround yourself with people that are giving life and cut off the supply to the enemy. The third thing that he does, we read about in 2 Chronicles 32 and 5, it says, then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. The third thing that Hezekiah does is that he rebuilds walls, that he repairs the issues in his own defense. He builds armory, he builds weapons and shields and all of these kinds of things. This is what he does. And I'm not going to go too deep into this one. I just want to read about what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus because Paul says it far more eloquently than I ever could. But it says this in Ephesians chapter 6, 
about the armor of God and how we should be putting it on daily. He says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We are to clothe ourselves in the armor of God daily, not just once when you were young and grew up in church and heard about the armor of God, not just doing it then, but do it daily. Daily clothe yourself in the armor of God. That's what he calls us to do. That's how we build our defense. That's how we build up the armory that will take out the enemy. The fourth thing that we read about is from 2 Chronicles 32 and 6. We see that he appointed officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is greater power that is with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. The fourth thing that Hezekiah did is that he encouraged himself. When the enemy is coming against you, you have to encourage yourself in the Lord. You have to repeat the promises that God has made over your life. You have to repeat the promises that God has made over your family. And you might not know what some of these promises are. I wanna encourage you to do this. Put yourself into that scripture right there. Say, I am strong and I am courageous. I am not afraid or discouraged because the enemy and the vast army that is with him is coming against me because greater is the power that is with me than the power of the enemy. Put yourself into that scripture. Encourage yourself in the Lord. And it's not surprising that just when Hezekiah is doing this, just when Hezekiah is encouraging his people, the people of Judah, just when he is building them up and building their confidence, this is exactly what the enemy goes after. Exactly what the enemy goes after. The messengers that come from Assyria start ridiculing the people of Judah and they start making fun of everything that they have done. They start criticizing them. They start saying, you're foolish. You people can't win this battle. You people have no chance of overcoming us. Don't you see everything that we have done? I see you with your few people in your army. I see your small amount of wall rebuilding that you're doing, but you have no chance. Your God is nothing. Your people are nothing. Your defenses are nothing. We will overcome you. So much so that the king of Assyria, Sennacherib himself, writes a letter to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, receives this letter. And this is the fifth thing that Hezekiah does. He receives this letter and he does this. We read about this in 2 Kings. It also talks about this in the book of Isaiah. 
the thing that Hezekiah does is that he gets Isaiah with him and he prays. Hezekiah says, it says this about Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. It says, Hezekiah received the letter, this is the letter from Sennacherib, from the messengers and he read it. Then he went to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but they were only wood and stone fashioned from human hands. And verse 19 says, Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. This is Hezekiah's fifth response, and this is his supernatural response. This is his spiritual response. He probably should have done this first. He does all kinds of other things first. He assembles people around him, wise counsel, all of those different things, and then he prays. He gets together with the prophet Isaiah, and he prays. It doesn't matter the order necessarily. The point is that Hezekiah prays, and he gets the message of Sennacherib which is representative of the issue that we face in life, and he spreads it out before the Lord, and he worships God, and then he asks for help. He takes the issue that is in his life, and he spreads it out before the Lord. He worships God, and then he asks for help. He says, God, we need your help. There is no way that we can overcome this vast army. There is no way that I can overcome this addiction. There is no way that I can overcome this enemy. There's no way that I can pay this bill. There's no way that I can make ends meet. There's no way that I can do this, that, or the other. I need your help, God. But you'll notice that he doesn't go straight to God and ask for help. He brings God the issue and he spreads it out before him and he worships him. He starts by worshiping him and then he asks for help. And help is exactly what comes in the form of an angel. God sends an angel that annihilates the Assyrian army, like 150,000 people die or something crazy like that. So much so that Sennacherib flees back to Assyria in disgrace, the Bible says, and his own sons kill him because he has been disgraced by Hezekiah and the entire army of Judah. It's powerful. But what it tells me is that natural strategy is good, natural strategy is important, but what changed everything was when Hezekiah prayed. That you might feel like your prayer doesn't do anything. You might feel like your prayer is not heard by God. But what this scripture tells me is that God hears prayers that God is moved when we pray, that God responds when we pray, that God cares about our needs, that God sees you right where you're at, that God sees your needs, that God sees your wants, that God cares about you deeply, that God is moved by you. You might feel like my prayers don't change anything, but God is moved by you. God is moved by what you care about. 
And I wanna encourage you to keep on praying that thing, the thing that you think that God is not caring about, the thing that you think that God is not gonna move about, I wanna encourage you to keep praying that thing because it moves God. It will move God when you pray about a thing. That's what we see when Hezekiah prays. The prayers of a righteous person avails much. That's what the book of James says. And so what we see is that Hezekiah is able to win this crucial battle against Sennacherib that brings all kinds of wealth and fame and accolades in his direction. Other nations that had been nervous, that had been fearful about the king of Assyria are now celebrating Hezekiah and everything that the God of Hezekiah had done because the God of Hezekiah had now removed what was a common enemy for all of these surrounding nations. And so Hezekiah becomes a big deal. Hezekiah becomes celebrated. People from all around the region starts bringing wealth, gold, and all kinds of other things in his direction and celebrating him because of the battle that God had won for him. But even more than the wealth and the safety and the accolades and the peace, even more than all of those things, Hezekiah receives something far more valuable. And we read about it in the book of Matthew, chapter one, verse nine. It says this, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. This is the genealogy of when Jesus enters into the world and we see Hezekiah's name mentioned right there. This is the genealogy when you take a step back that you can see that starts with Abraham and works through all kinds of different people and then finishes with Jesus, the Jesus that enters into the world. There's your Christmas tie-in, I told you that you'd get one. This is Jesus who enters the world as a triumphant king. He comes as a baby, but he's a triumphant king. And so he enters into the world through the lineage of Hezekiah. If Hezekiah had not won this battle, he wouldn't be mentioned in the lineage that brought Jesus into the world. It wasn't just the battle that he won in this moment, it entered him into the lineage so that he would be named amongst the kings that brought Jesus into the world. And what we know when we take a step back, we can see that there's Abraham and we can see that there's Jesus. What we find is that Hezekiah is right about the middle. And Hezekiah didn't know that at the time. He just won one single battle. But what he knew through the prophets that had surrounded him at that time was that there was going to be a Messiah that would be coming into the world and they were still waiting. He had won that battle, but they were still waiting on the Messiah that was coming. And so we find him right in the middle of this lineage. And it's right in the middle that you can often lose your hope when you're right in the middle because you're waiting on the Messiah to come. You're waiting on the answered prayer that you've been praying. It's right in the middle that it's the easiest to lose hope. Hezekiah wasn't out of the woods yet, And I feel that that in some ways defines the year that we have been having. At one stage of this year, when the virus was first hitting, we were lost in the woods. We didn't know which direction to move, right? 
People are scrambling. People are trying to pivot all over the place. We don't know which direction to move. We're lost in the woods. But what I've been hearing God say is that you might still be in the woods, but what I've been able to hear recently is the sound of the road. You might still be in the woods. You might not be out of the woods just yet, but you can hear the sound of the road. And if you keep moving in that direction, if you keep standing, if you keep moving, you won't just be able to hear the sound of the road. You'll eventually be able to see the road. And eventually you'll walk your way out of the woods that, have, that you've been lost in. If you keep on standing, if you don't quit, you can't lose. If you keep on moving, you can't lose. If you keep moving in the direction, if you keep moving in the sound of victory, you will experience that victory. So don't quit. Don't give up now. I know that you're tired. I know that you feel bloodied. I know that you feel like you're losing. I know that you feel like this has been a difficult year, but keep standing, keep moving. You might feel like you have been in a battle where some of your teeth have been knocked out, where you've been bloodied. You might feel like you're in the 11th round, but you're still standing. You are still an overcomer. You will still experience triumph if you don't quit. If you keep moving in the direction of the sound of triumph, you will experience that triumph for yourself because you were made to triumph. If you'll stand with me, I wanna pray this over you, church. God, I thank you that you have made us to be more than conquerors. I thank you that you have made us to be overcomers. I thank you that you have given us victory after victory after victory. I thank you for wise counsel that surrounds us. I thank you that we are able to starve the enemy. I thank you for the spiritual armor that we can put on ourselves daily. I thank you that we can encourage ourselves with the promises that you have made over us, that we can encourage ourselves with the promises that you have made over our family. And I thank you that we can pray to you, that we can come to you with the issues that we are experiencing the hopelessness that we feel, the burdens that we are carrying, and we can lay them out at your feet and that we can worship you in this place, God. I thank you that you are turning in our direction. I thank you that we are not lost in the woods anymore, but that we can hear the sound of triumph. And I thank you that we are still standing. And I thank you that you are helping, that you are bringing help in our direction, supernatural, spiritual, divine, victorious help. We're thankful, God, that you are the creator, that you are the savior, that you are the restorer, that you are our hope, that you are faithful, that you have made a way where there seemed to be no way, when we seem to be lost, that you created the path that we would need to pursue, that you have opened the doors that needed to be opened, that you have restored the relationships that needed to be restored. When it seemed like there was no hope, you brought hope. And we're thankful, God, that we have been made to triumph, that you have created the way for us to experience triumph today. And it's in your name, God, the matchless, awesome, powerful, immaculate, triumphant name of Jesus Christ that we have all prayed today, church. Amen. 
we're believing that that word will bring strength and hope into your life. Absolutely. If God just spoke to you through this message and you're stirred right now to partner with us and to sow financially into the ministry that is Cornerstone Church, I want to encourage you to jump on over to our website, which is simply cornerstone.church and click the give button. Find the avenue that is most convenient for you today. That's right. We are going to continue spreading the message of the gospel and we look forward to continuing to connect together.